I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. Today's episode, me and Joseph Lamania are going to go deep on Anthony Kim. And uh, we're also going to have Shane Bacon on to talk about this with obviously the news that Anthony Kim might be coming back. We figured it'd be fun to do a little career uh, retrospective and then looking forward and some comparisons to what Anthony Kim would be in the modern era. But first... Joseph, what are you in on this week? Well, I'm double dipping a little bit from writing about this in the Friday Golf Newsletter, but I got to say, way in on Tony Finau regaining some speed. Andy, don't know if you saw this, but it's been... I read your little piece. It's been a little bit of a statistical anomaly over the last couple of years. I've been puzzled as to why Tony Finau's driving distance numbers haven't been what they used to be. He's kind of been trending the wrong direction. Ball speed pretty much every year on tour has gone down. He used to be a top 10, top 15 ball speed guy. Last year was like 40th. And especially on the back half of last year, results weren't as good and his driving distance numbers were down. He mentioned after one of his rounds at Torrey that he's bringing that speed back up, that he was nursing a couple injuries and he's finally healthy. He did an offseat of off season of training including some speed training and i'm pretty excited to see what tony finau has this year he's obviously a great player i think some people may forget he won four times between july of 2022 and april of 2023 and just real quickly to to rattle off some of his major championship performances between 2018 and 2021 he had at least two top tens in each of those four years at least two top tens uh, in a major championship in 2022 and 2023, zero top tens combined in any, either of those years. And I think the speed decrease is a part of that. So I'm pretty excited to see what Tony Finau has got this year. I mean, I think about Tony Finau and obviously if you were going to pull PGA tour fans, the first attribute in terms of his game that they would touch on is the speed. So that is a, you know, very important aspect to his game, right? I I think like that would be like if Steph Curry um, had an injury that prohibited him from getting enough lift to shoot three pointers, right? Where he was hampered and lost, let's just say 8% on a three pointer. Like I'm just trying to equate some equivalencies here. Um, But like the aspect of being out distance is it obscures a little bit how good of an iron player and short game he has. The putting was very scary, very scary it's on bad. Sunday. It was, it was maybe the worst I've ever seen of it. But like you're talking about a guy who has three elite skills, and it's very rare for any player to have like the possibility to be at the top end of a elite field in three categories. There are very few players that can do that. And Tony Finau, obviously, getting that speed back. That's a good harbinger for uh, for 2024 majors. He could be a nice dark horse to look at 
in terms of like if you're doing like I had a buddy that was at the win uh, in in Vegas and sent me a bed slip for the for the majors and I was picking out some long shots, but like that could be one to look at, right? I think the Masters in particular is an excellent spot for Tony Finau. What are you in on? Uh, I am in on uh, this week's tournament, Pebble Beach. I I'm kind of like mixed on designated events in general, but I just think that this match is a great match in terms of having a elite field at, you know, your elite venue, like one of your premier venues. And the way this all has worked out, where the event falls in between, you know, the Super Bowl and the conference championships, you know, the last few years of this event have not been pretty with the Saudi International kind of stealing away a lot of players. Um, Famously, like Phil used to play in this event all the time. Then he started playing at Saudi International. Now he's obviously playing Liv. But this event has has been kind of like mutilated the last few years in terms of a field perspective, where it went from one of the stronger events to one of the weaker events. For a tour right now that is, I don't know if struggling is the right word, but not its strongest it's ever been. Um, with fans, with with in terms of their fields, in terms of their you know who's playing, having Pebble Beach be a big time event on you know what you're putting out there on you know CBS that will be broadcasted prime time or not prime time but like middle Sunday Saturday with no real big competition outside of college basketball. This event being a big deal is important and awesome for the PGA Tour, right? You're going to have the best players playing one of your best venues, definitely your best television venue, right? From a television perspective, there is no course that comes close to Pebble Beach. So just that pairing is an awesome thing for the PGA Tour. I'm super in on this event. I think reducing the Pro-Am to just two days um, makes a ton of sense. Dropping MPCC, it's a wonderful golf course, but having it be just Pebble and Spyglass, it just makes this event a lot cleaner, a lot cleaner, and the future of it, I, and just in general, I'm way in on this event. I'm with you. I think the visuals alone are going to be awesome, having all the best golfers, most of the best golfers in the world on the same golf course. I think weather is a little bit of a concern, so I don't know if you've checked out the forecast, but Looks like it might I'm, be, I'm aware. I'm yeah. aware. The atmospheric river's coming. The low. 50s I think that could rain. be. I, I think it could be good for for entertainment of on the golf course. I hope so. Yeah, I just don't want to have a soggy finish. We'll see. But uh, I'm with you. It's going to be a great tournament. But uh, one thing I'm out on that's <laughs> related to the tournament. Uh, I know this has been talked about a little bit. I'm way out on the sponsor exemptions and how they were used this week. And specifically, Peter Malnati, Webb Simpson, Adam Scott, three policy board members all getting a sponsor exemption into this event. I think optically it's really bad. And uh, I mean, Peter Malnati and Webb Simpson are two of the players with the longest odds to win this tournament. Peter Malnati's dead last. And I just think generally the tour has a bit of an optics issue with some back scratching. Uh, If you're in the in crowd, maybe you'll get an invite it to a $20 million purse with no cuts. And I, I do have a problem with it. I think sponsor exemptions can be a tricky subject because like nobody's complaining about Nick Dunlap, right? Like, cause I'm kind of philosophically opposed to sponsor exemptions in general, but somebody could say, well, Nick Dunlap was a great use of a sponsor exemption. Or, or if tiger wants to play, what do you do then? 
Fair. And I think my answer to both of those is that there are ways to get them into the field that aren't a sponsor exemption. You could carve out a spot for the reigning U.S. amateur champion. That's a good way to to get somebody into the field without having to uh, giving somebody the the ability to just write a name in that. You know, you could get a situation like Paresh Amin last year, which was a crazy sponsor <laughs> exemption at the Zurich Classic. For those, can you explain what happened for those that that might might have forgotten about Paresh Amin? Yeah, well, there were no had a ba- great breakdown on the shotgun start. There were no boundaries around what a sponsor exemption could be. So this guy Paresh Amin, that I'm hesitant to call him a professional golfer, though I think he's played <laughs> some mini tour stuff, routinely shoots in the 80s in mini tour golf, and got a sponsor exemption to the Zurich Classic last year, which is a partner event. So I think he ended up teaming up with Michael Thompson, if I remember correctly. And I mean, he was shooting, hitting terrible golf shots. Might have shot in the 80s on his own ball, if I recall correctly, in the best ball portion of that format. So just generally, there have been some stinky sponsor exemptions. And I think this week, even if, yeah, Peter Malnati is a PGA Tour player, like he's not, Paresh Amin, but having three of those spots go to policy board members when it's a $20 million no cut event, I think looks bad. And uh, it, it I'm not going to say it puts a black cloud on the event. It doesn't, but I just think generally the tour needs to clean that kind of stuff up. That's uh, I agree. I, I don't know what the right answer is. I, I, but I do know that they are not vitally important. And I also know that four is not the right number of sponsors exemptions. I could, I could, I just think that there has to be a, a really great reduction in them. I, th- I probably think that it's a non even number, no greater than two, right? That's probably the, the right number. I'm inclined towards zero truly. And, and you figure out I, a way <laughs> tie, you could use a career money list type of exemption if you need to, or like in the Nick Dunlap case, reigning U.S. amateur champion. Like, I'm, I'm just in favor of getting them into the field organically and not giving somebody the ability to just write a name in. So my my thought, this is just my my general thought, is that this this is a great argument for trees, like on golf courses, when somebody's like, oh, you can't, you can't cut down trees. Like, you know, you're going to ruin the holes. Is if you walk around with them and say, Show me the tree, one tree. You could give them 18 trees, one tree per hole. 18 trees on a golf course that are vitally important to the integrity of this golf course. You know, when they when you synthesize it down to like that, that 18, you get 18 trees you can keep. They'll usually come back with like, well, there's like four important trees. So if you just reduce the sponsor's exemptions, people are going to be like, oh, like these really aren't very important, and it's a way you get rid of them slowly. Tell you what, between the sponsor exemption talk and the tree talk, this is going to be Webb Simpson's least favorite segment on the Friday Golf Podcast of all time. And he might agree. He might agree with this. Like, but you're not going to turn down getting into a, a no cut event that's got a twenty million dollar purse, right? Which has a legitimate impact on other people's careers, right? Their FedEx Cup points up for grabs. That uh, this could end up being the difference between why Webb Simpson gets a card next year versus somebody Maverick else. McNeely. Yeah. Or Mad McNeely. Absolutely. Yeah. What else are you out on this week, Andy? All right. I'm out. I'm just out on the continued advancement of modern drivers. Oh, yeah. 
This is uh this is a topic that I've I've broached many times here, but I'm seeing like some drivers that are touting if you hit it off the center of the club face, the ball goes actually further than if you hit it in the dead center of the sweet spot. I mean, what are we doing with professional golf? Like, I'm all for this for like 15 handicaps and 20 handicaps. I'm not saying that we should be making the game more approachable for them. But in the vein of professional golf, all we're doing is we're just obscuring skill over and over again. Like, we're making it so it's just impossible to tell who's better at golf. And it becomes just a a putting contest every week because off the tee, the ball, like I have a new paradigm. I'm not going to lie. Like the thing always goes straight. Like it's hard for me to hit bad tee shots, like really hard. And I just think that this driver technology has gotten completely out of control, especially when you're talking about the greatest players in the game, we should be, you know, the, the game at the high level at the pro golf, there's so many things that are broken, but this might be the most broken thing aspect of all of it is that we have, we have taken to the club that was the hardest club to hit in the bag in the nineties. And it is now the easiest club to hit in the bag as your driver without a doubt is the easiest club to hit in the bag. So now we have, everybody can get off the tee and then it 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 just makes the game so much less interesting. And really, it what is doing? I saw there was a Shane Ar- a Ryan article in Golf Digest this week about how golf doesn't have any needle movers. Well, you know why? Because dominance, greatness in golf is being obscured by equipment. And the the sooner we rein this stuff back, the sooner we make the driver hard to hit again the sooner we'll know who the actual superstars of the sport are. So I'm just so out on, on this new driver technology and the idea that the world's best players have clubs that you can hit it anywhere on the club face and have it go out of the park. And I don't want to make a crazy comparison to steroid baseball, but that's the same thing. It was, it was like, Oh, a broken bat home run for the guy that was juiced up, right? Like this is insane. You shouldn't be able to just neck it and have it go 320. Bring back distance dispersion with the driver. I think that's the big thing that you see with with the old clubs is that there was a chance the ball might go 260. If you hit it on the nuts, it's going to go 290. But you had a 30-yard. There's no distance dispersion now. Totally agree, Andy. I mean, anecdotally, I could not hit a driver in high school. And now with a modern driver, like I'm pretty good with my driver. And it's not because my swing's a lot better. Um, there was a moment during the farmer's insurance open where within like a two minute span, you had a a commercial for the Callaway AI smoke, this new driver, which literally says they show the, the visual of the driver and they show all these different circles where you can hit on the driver head. And they say in the commercial, whether you hit one off the toe, heel high or low, there's a speed spot there. And then within two minutes, there's Xander Shoffley hitting the AI smoke in the event. And he kind of one hand finishes the driver. He doesn't strike it well. And it goes like right past Tony Finau's ball who had just hit one that he hit pretty well. Like it's right in front of your face that you don't have to hit the center of the club face and they're advertising it. So I agree with you. Like maybe for the amateur, that's fine. But at the professional level, I think it's extremely distasteful and promoting it as if it's a good thing. I think it's clearly taking away from the skill in the sport. So wholeheartedly agree with you. I'm out on that too. 
All right. Well, that's it. Let's get to Shane Bacon and uh, Anthony Kemp. But first, let's talk a little bit about Club TFE. This is uh, our membership offering for the Friday, if you're unaware, if you're a first-time passerby here. Um, we cover a wide range of things. Uh, last week, we debuted a new Wednesday piece that covers the golf, uh, the professional golf tour. On top of, we've got kind of a couple other things you can expect every week. <coughs> the first is Design Notebook by uh, Garrett Morrison, where he di- dives into all kinds of design trends. I jump in there every once in a while, too. Other members from our team jump in there. You get a course profile, in-depth writing on a golf course every week. And then we have our new uh, tour guide, which you are a big contributor of, Joseph, as well as Brendan. Uh, I might jump in there every once in a while. It's going to give you stuff to watch, give you stuff to get you excited for the week in golf. Anything on 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 tour notebook, tour guide? Well, there will be something on Pebble this week, right, in advance of the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. So, yeah, I'm excited about it. We're going to give a little insight on what kind of players should do well at a given course, uh, some interesting anecdotes about the tournament's history, maybe something funny. Uh, it'll be a fun spot to learn about golf but it's also gonna be a fun comment section so i'm excited about it yeah so anyways the club tfe offering really if you're looking for more from us you want more content from us this is this is your spot it's 120 dollars for the year um and it just goes to supporting us making great content so uh if you're interested go to thefriedag.com slash membership and you can find out all the information there uh now let's get to shane and uh our anthony kim discussion All right, Shane, welcome on. Big news. I, I'm excited to talk in depth about this. Big news uh, last week was Anthony Kim is mulling a return to golf, potentially live, potentially the PGA Tour. Obviously, Anthony Kim, for, for the vast majority of our adulthood, really like post-college um, life, has been a bit of an internet uh, folk hero. You know, we had, we had Anthony Kim in our early 20s and Joseph... You know, you had Anthony Kim in your teen years, your coming of age years, uh, but he's been gone for a while. And, uh, you know, the last week I've really been rebooting some Anthony Kim memories, uh, thinking about his golf game in detail. And I figured that would be a good exercise is to really go in depth as to who Anthony Kim was, our favorite memories um, from the Anthony Kim years, and then, you know, kind of talk about who he might be. If he comes back, you know, what what type of player would he profile as if we took his stats from yesteryear to and translate them to today? What what type of, you know, how how he would rank in the world scheme if he came back with no rust, which, you know, I, it, it's a it's a fascinating topic and it'll be interesting to see in the coming days or weeks if he ends up being, uh, you know, uh, returning to golf. I would guess it's going to be live. Um, but we can talk more about that uh, later. Um, what do you guys, uh, it, it, just before we get really in depth, what are your guys' uh, memories of AK? Well, Andy, I, I just want to say I was uh, reminded via Twitter, I wrote a mailbag for foxsports.com back in 2016. So what's that, eight years ago? The headline, the mailbag was, what would break golf media more, a Tiger win? or an Anthony Kim return to the PGA Tour. Uh, unfortunately, as I go to click that link, 
it's dead. So <laughs> this is how far back Anthony Kim stories go as you get dead links. Um, so, yeah, I mean, listen, this has been something we've talked a lot about. Uh, Joseph, I know, again, not in your age, your age range necessarily, but for Andy and I, I think Andy's 38. Is that right, Andy? 37. You're, you're 37. You're, uh, almost. I'm, I'm approaching 38. But So, I mean, this guy's like literally right in the middle of you and I. I mean, I'm 40 yeah. and you're 37 and AK's 38. So when you talk about the next thing after Tiger, when Tiger burst on the scene and we were a little younger maybe than we'd been kind of formidable years, if you will, AK was kind of our guy even before Rory McIlroy and Jordan Spieth. So for you and I, I mean, the Anthony Kim return – has always been something we have at least, you know, hoped to see in some capacity. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a topic, and and obviously there are a lot of factors into this, um, and we'll, we'll get into them all. But I figure what would be really instructive is a little bit of Anthony Kim background. Um, I got I got in the weeds. This brought back some memories of the shotgun start spotlights that Brendan and I literally text about every every month about bringing back. Um, you know, but I, I got into the weeds, found some really, really great articles. Um, the great, the really the best article about Anthony Kim that I would urge everybody to go read. And a lot of stuff that I'm going to go through here is from is Tom Callahan's Golf Digest article. One of the greatest golf writers of all time, Tom Callahan. And uh, he did an unbelievable profile, I believe, in 2009 on Anthony Kim. So let's get into some AK basics. Uh, he's 38 years old, as Shane mentioned. He was the son of two Korean immigrants, and he was born in Koreatown in L.A. Um, his parents like, were not obviously well off, but they owned a spice shop in L.A. that became like pretty popular, and they, they accumulated like pretty substantial wealth. Um, he was a promising player, um, and, and the parents had enough money that they were able to buy a second house in La Quinta. So at age 16, I think this is just like a great intro story about Anthony Kim. At age 16, he was living basically on his own. And his, his, his mom would go out every week and basically make meals for the week. You know, you see that obviously on social media now where, you know, you cook something on Sunday for the whole week. Like, you know, you basically prepackage all your lunches. His mom was coming out and making him lunch for the week and then going back home. He's 16 years old living at PJ West playing golf every day. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he, his parents would visit on the weekends and that was, he was on his own during the week. Um, like any parent out there, just think about the craziness of this, but this was their dedication to his golf game. They, they knew that living in the city of LA and, uh, the, the golf that was afforded him was not as conducive as him living in Palm Springs. So they, you know, huge sacrifice for for his golf. Here's from a Callahan Golf Digest article, and uh, this is this is amazing. Um, growing up in LA, this is this is where Kim resolved. Uh, okay, this is where Kim resolved to choke up on every shot. Not really because the shaft was too long, simply because that part of the grip felt good to him. So he he was notorious. He choked up about an inch and a half on on every shot. It was just something that you knew from him. Um, here's Nick D'Amico, uh, who, who was the marshal at the golf course. We're so proud of Anthony. He had a little bit of a, a rep when he was nine and 10. What a cocky little bastard he was. No, we all loved him. 
He'd look out at that 230 yard sign hanging on the back, uh, high back netting and say, someday I'm going to drive a ball over that fence. I told him it's part of my job, Anthony, to make sure balls don't go over that fence. But it's OK with me if you want to try. Um, here's Ron Del Barrio, who was uh, a teaching pro at this little nine hole course or nine hole par three course they grew up at. You always knew when Anthony was here. Because you could hear that unmistakable crack of the ball. Newcomers would turn around and ask, who, who hit that? He barely came up to the waist of the guys he challenged to two whole matches, up one and back down nine for a buck. That's my memory of him here. Returning with a smile on his face, waving a dollar bill. So, Andy, it, it seems like, like I remember Natalie Golbus telling me years ago that the two players that made the different sound with the golf club were Tiger and Adam Scott. When you read through old Anthony Kim stories, it seems like he was one of those guys as well. I mean, I was going through old articles like Phil Mickelson talking about how good he hit the ball, golf ball. Rory McIlroy talking about how solid he hit it every single time. Brian Harmon um, was on with Colton Drew, and they were talking. He was talking about the ball striking when they played together at the Walker Cup at Chicago. Just his ability to hit it in the center of the face at all times was the separator. You know, when you think about him coming up as a junior golfer and a great young player, was he was the ball striker that great ball strikers envy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was he was electric. Electric. So he went to Oklahoma. Well, hold on, uh, Andy, real quick, real quick. Just just want to touch on the Shipnuck article as well. Shipnuck wrote a piece yeah. about AK and he talked a little bit about AK and his dad's relationship. And there was some Earl Woodsian situations between Paul AK's dad and AK, he once threw a first place trophy away that Anthony had won because he said he didn't shoot low enough, even though he won first place. He threw it in the trash and they had a, a spat. I believe it might have been when he was in college where the two didn't talk to each other for two years. So there was a lot of that pushing your son as much as you could push him type of situation between dad and son with Anthony Kim that, you know, was probably a big part of how he got so great so early. Yet, obviously, there was some some background battles between the two that they dealt with in, internally with the family. Yeah. I mean, I it's interesting, the push and pull of youth sports, right? I, I thought, I don't know if you guys watched that uh, Yannick Sinner's uh, speech yep. uh, at the at the Australian Open after winning. I thought yep. that was amazing. He said, he said, I wish everybody had parents like mine, basically, is such a cool line to say, right? I mean, I know, Joseph, I know you don't have kids, but, you know, for Andy and I, it's like, raising these little kids, I mean, just imagining them saying something that nice and that thoughtful when they're 18, 19, 20, 22. I mean, that's the dream, right, is that you can raise them in this perfect way. Yet on the other end, you see so many great athletes that had parents that pushed the hell out of them. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's really a push and pull. It's tough to, tough to battle. What was the sport Yannick was? So Sinner, uh, you know, his whole thesis behind his parents was they let me do whatever I wanted. Um, and he was... He won some sort of world junior event in, at age 11 in another sport I'm forgetting right now. And then he's winning the Australian Open at, at age 22. Is I want to say skier? it was some skiing or swimming skiing. or something. Skiing. Yeah, that sounds about yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Like he was great skier, world, world, you know, like a world class junior skier at age 11. And then literally 11 years later, he's winning one of the Grand Slams in tennis. Um, unbelievable. And I think like real, you know, uh, should be real fuel for allowing kids to experiment, play different sports. Andy, on the maybe I'm getting ahead of us a little bit, but on the Anthony Kim 
part of this is because amateur data isn't as good when you go back that far, but can you paint a little bit of a picture of how hyped of a prospect Anthony Kim was yeah. going into Oklahoma? Are you Maybe you're getting into that and some of his amateur accolades, but that's something that's still unclear to me because there's this conversation now of, it was Anthony Kim overrated and do we overglorify him when we look back at the time? So curious how if you can paint the picture of his early amateur career uh, leading into- He was, I mean, he was like all, he was legitimately great. Great prospect. Huge boom going to Oklahoma. Um, and when he gets to Oklahoma, immediately one of the best college golfers in the in the in the country, like all American, all th- all three years, all three right? Years. All here. three years, all American, best scoring average in Oklahoma history at the point yeah. that time, right? Yeah. So yeah. here here he goes. So he's three time All American, two thousand five Walker Cup. He turned pro uh, in two thousand six after three years at Oklahoma. Um, his last year he was a second team All American, and we'll get into why. Uh, Tom Callahan article again. In college, Kim hardly has to say kids drink every single day. That's what I did. When you're in college, you feel invincible. You don't have to make a tea time because you're on full scholarship at OU. Whether you go to class or not, it doesn't matter. I tried to go to class as little as possible. What was this major? I majored in not picking a major, he says. I just kept it undecided, bidding my time until I turned pro. He planned to spend just one year in Norman, mainly to please his mother, but she wheeled two more out of him. However, in Anthony's third and final year, he went a little haywire, which is to say backward. Not so much on the merits as on the demerits. Kim slipped from first team All-American to second. How could I be second team, he thought at the time. In one of the best fields we played all year, I won by eight shots. Before that, another good field, I won by seven. But he says now it's also true that I was benched for a few tournaments. I don't know, probably five tournaments. And I said stupid things all the time. I still say stupid things. The bottom line, it's taken me a while to come to this, is that it was mostly my fault. You can't screw up yourself and then expect the best from someone else. So just like, I mean, he's just golf. Everything's second to, to partying when he gets to college and he's still just dominating college. I mean, it's it, you talk about foreshadowing for, you know, the big moments of his careers. And I know we'll get to Allen B in a bit, but I mean, the fact that he, you know, we joke, I know we've joked at times about if there was like a booze tournament for professional golfers who would win, it feels like Anthony Kim would have been the heavy favorite in that department. Shipnuck in his article about AK, I think he said he had a double major at Oklahoma and it was girls and partying. You know, I mean, that's obviously was the focus, you know, when he was in Oklahoma was he was going to party first. He was going to play great golf second. And he knew even with party and the great golf was going to come because that's how talented he was. Yeah, it's uh, the talent was is unbelievable. So he he turned pro in 2006 in his first event. He gets a sponsor's exemption into the Valero Texas Open. He finishes second. 65 in the final round to nearly win. Eric Axley won that week. Um, And he said, Andy, I don't know if you have this, but he said after that, the second place finish, he said that was the worst thing that could have happened to me was what he said. Because he said he liked shiny things. And I think he got like $250,000 check for second place. And he said nothing could have been worse for for him right out of the gate than than playing that well in his first PJ Tour event. So this is the Callahan uh, Digest article. Speaking of headaches, Anthony wasn't finished with the vodka in 2006, previewing the PGA Tour at two stops. So he only got two sponsor exemptions. 
Kim had either the good or bad fortune to succeed instantly. Debuting at the uh, Valero Texas Open on a sponsor's exemption, he finished tied for second and earned three hundred grand. Until that moment, Anthony wasn't completely sure he could make a living with his golf clubs. This may sound crazy, he says, but at the Valero, I kind of figured it out. After that, and for a long while, he was a little too sure. That first year, I didn't know what happened. It was a train wreck of a year. I did everything wrong you could possibly do. I didn't deserve to keep my card. I don't know how many golf balls I hit in 2007, but it couldn't have been in the thousands. Sometimes I would hit 10 for a week. I just play the tournament, and that's not me. That's Carlos Franco. <laughs> Carlos Franco. So funny. I need to hit golf balls and loosen up and go through my routine. I didn't do that. I stayed out every night. Everyone saw it. I didn't respect the game. It didn't. I didn't respect myself. On a hungover day, he'd sit back and reflect, what are you doing? Uh, but he knew the answer. You're screwing off instead of working, and then you're tired for the next three weeks. To try and take some of that tiredness away, you go out on the town again, looking for a rhythm. Now you're two months tired, exhausted, ashamed, and that's how my year went. So he does those two sponsors exemptions, and then he got his card through Q School. So he finished T13 in Q School. That's how he played 2007. So he kind of like, at the end of 2007, kind of started to take golf more seriously. And one person that he went to to help out was uh, Marco Mira. Well, and Andy, not to, not to interrupt you, but I think... One interesting, the, the 2007 season and how you described it as a catastrophe, it, he still played like r- decent golf by other people's standards. Yes. Like he was somewhere around 30th in strokes gained for the season, made 20 cuts in 26 starts, hit four top 10. So not like the prolific career that he would have the next year, but it wasn't like 2007. He missed every cut. Like it's it's interesting to look at his stats compared to maybe how it was described and how badly he says he hit the ball because it wasn't a complete disaster. There are articles about him being one of the best rookies of the year. And I think that's the interesting thing with this whole, dis- like people look back now at the stats and be like, well, look at these bad years. And here it's like, yeah, I went out all, every night. I partied every night. And like, that would be a detraction if you just looked at the stats, right? This is the context behind the stats is some of what was going on in his life. And then the back half, like we only have a couple good years of AK like to look at because then he had the injuries, right? And that's where we've gotten to now. Like that is the story till now is the injuries, the time away. Um, But like there's only a couple good years. So, so 2008 is his big year where he kind of bursts on the scene. Uh, And he became the first player to win twice in a year. Uh, under the age of 25 since Tiger, and he got to six in the world rankings. But, you know, the big thing, and this is from the Callahan piece, is like he kind of started to clean up his lifestyle, and he went to Mark O'Meara. So, of course, Mark was the first veteran veteran to throw an arm around Tiger Woods. Because of my relationship with Tiger, he says, I'm constantly asked, who's the next young player coming along? I've been hard-pressed to come up with a name. You know, Bill Haas is a nice player. There are a number of good, talented kids out there. But after I played three rounds with Anthony, I picked up the phone and called Tiger. This kid I've just finished playing golf with, I said, is the second best young player I've ever seen come along. Anthony acknowledges, I don't have many swing thoughts. I'm not smart enough to have a lot of swing thoughts. Well, I mean, there, there was like a famous, there was a famous moment where he's at a clinic or something with Tiger 
And I think Tiger was like talking through the 50 things that go into a good golf swing. And then they turned to AK and it was like literally kind of like the 10 cup moment where he's like, grip it or rip it, you know, after the long poem he does to Rene Russo. It's like, that was the way AK kind of thought about the golf game was, you know, what's interesting, Joseph was, I feel like Anthony Kim was extremely ahead of his time in the way he played golf, hit it as far as he could hit it, hit drive all, all over the place. And he never shied away from a flag stick. Obviously that was a big part of some of his success was there was no fear in the game. And when you hear about those types of players, Phil talked a lot about it with AK when he was asked about it. Like Phil was like, this dude is not scared of any flag. And that's coming from Phil Mickelson, who for 25 years was never scared of a flag, you know? Well, it's interesting you say that because I have, I agree to an extent. And then there's some ways in which I disagree. Don't have as detailed of data going back then. But one thing I noticed, some of the unbelievable volatility obviously in his life, but also on his scorecards. To me, it, it does probably scream of somebody who was ahead of his time with some of the speed and some of the distance, but with the not being scared of flag sticks, I, I would guess there were a lot of over-aggressive decisions. I see like double bogeys on par fives, like some big numbers, tons of birdies. Um, so I, th- I would probably say from like a course management perspective, he was probably behind on some of the conservatism with his approach shots, but uh, agree with the speed and the aggression off of the tee. But it clearly looks to, to me like somebody that could have benefited from some better on-course decision-making, which seems to be kind of go along with the general theme of how I he think the times, life. though, the times like course strategy and decision-making, like this was part of development of a tour pro like right, now for sure. with, with the systems, like the shot link data, this was pre shot link data. You didn't yep. understand. Like it was like people's peaks were late twenties, early thirties, because that's when you like start to it naturally figure out not to aim at flags. Like I, I like have this belief you figured that out as a golfer, but you know, now kids are figuring it out because they're being taught that at high school levels. Right. It's also Andy, it's also a skill. I mean, I think it's a skill to hit away from flags. I think aggressive players, you know, in, in human nature see a flag and even if they're aiming away at it in their mind, the back of their head, they're thinking, you know, if the pin's on the left side and there's water left and they're thinking to themselves, aim thirty feet right, the aggressive mindset still wants to pull that shot, right? And so that's actually a skill set to not in in a way kind of blank the flag out from your brain. And I think it's one of those things that if AK had played another six, seven years consistently, he probably would have got a lot more comfortable doing that. You know, like Tiger was one of the great players ever at conservative great shots, right? Yeah. People always think about Tiger as this dude that would knock down flag sticks. Tiger was unbelievable at aiming 20 feet away from a flag and hitting it there. Totally agree, Shane. And I think it requires a level of maturity and like humility to aim away from a flag a little bit. And when I was going back through some of his scorecards, the, not a lot of humility in the scorecards there's a lot of double bogeys and birdies and I, I think this gets talked about college coaches allude to this but when they see that upside that players are making eagles on par fives and it's easier to clean up some of those double bogeys and turn them into pars than it is to you know coach somebody's ceiling when they're making those eagles so i think anthony kim it kind of screams of that type of profile so that and again lines up with his personality yeah it's uh it's I don't know. It's interesting to think about him as in, in a different era. Um, I think like we see this with almost all professional athletes, 2008, 
Like if you compare it to NBA players, like NBA players today are so much more mature. Like they're so much more ready to handle, you know, being a professional athlete and across the board in all sports, we've seen like the maturity and the professionalism of athletes get so much higher, right? Like there are just, and I think like with golfers, it's the same thing. Like we see, like, look at Ludwig Ober, right? Just comes right on. He's ready to go. Like there's just so much more information and help to make these transitions than there there was, you know, in at this time, right? Andy, can I throw something at you that I'm almost positive Joseph is not going to remember, and I definitely didn't remember until about 45 minutes ago. Do you remember a show called Shaq Versus? Do you remember this at all? Yes. You do? Vaguely, Shaq, very vaguely. Shaq Versus was a show that Shaq put on with ABC where he would battle other athletes at their own sports. This was Shaq's goal was to say, I'm the best athlete in the world, okay? And he would, like, he threw footballs against Roethlisberger in one of the episodes. Now, he was terrible. He would lose every single time. But he did do a match on Shaq versus, it was Shaq and Anthony Kim versus Charles Barkley playing left-handed no. because he had such bad yips that he had to swing lefty off the tee and his short game was righty. He played with Bubba and AK and Shaq won in a playoff hole. Shaq made like a 30-foot curler and AK went up to him to get all fired up. Shaq almost went and jumped in the pond. I was watching highlights this morning of it. But like this was the celebrity of AK was this show where Shaquille O'Neal, you know, in the in the mid 2000s was as big a deal as that existed yes. in sports, both physically and just in terms of his presence. He's picking Anthony Kim to be his partner on the show. So that's I mean, the level he's of in fame. his prime. He's in yes. his that's the at very end of his prime. Really? Right. Right. He's still playing in the NBA into like 2009. You had the weird Suns era. I think he was. I think this was when he was on the Celtics. By the way, I think Celtics. when Shaq versus existed was he was a Celtics Shaq. You had the Suns and Celtics era. So weird. The Cavs Shaq jersey's got to be the weirdest. But yes, I digress. Post Heat Shaq is just a weird, weird. We uh, talk it's about kind it. of like yeah. <laughs> um. All right. So to, a little bit more on 2008. It was my best year. He deadpans, as far as understanding myself, anyway. Not since Tiger had any American uh, under 25 won twice on the PGA Tour. Plus, Wood says, he did it on two great golf courses, Quail Hollow and Congressional. I knew you'd like that. G- granted, granted, mo- you think about modern golf courses and professional golf, especially PGA Tour golf, like that's the layout. And he's winning on those kind of big boy golf courses that you know tend to favor long hitters. So, I mean, in, in 2024... It seems like AK would have existed in a good place with the way golf is, right? You want to know who he beat in the uh, Wachovia, which was Quail Hollow, and Congressional, which was the AT and T, which was Tigers' tournament. I think I've got two thousand eight. I think Wachovia was Ben Curtis, correct? Yeah, (laughs) so good. And then, and then uh, at AT and T, dusted the junk man, Freddie Jacobson. Oh yeah. <laughs> Captain Ball Striker. Um, I, I urge you, Andy. I don't know if you run the shotgun start account or fried egg social account, but they used to give out jackets if you won the Wachovia. They were these, they are so blue. I'd 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 say they are like Duke Blue Devil Blue jackets. And AK's winning press conference, he's wearing this jacket. It is awful. An awful jacket. And God, I hope he still has it in his closet. It's uh 
be a good question if you, you could ask him if he comes back you know press where's the where's the blue jacket baby yeah um do you have more on 2008 so, andy yeah a little bit more so he wood says he did it on two great golf courses uh they're not exactly the easiest courses on tour and he handled both of them he's always had the talent now he has the experience of winning and that breeds comp- confidence so that year kim wins twice he gathered eight top tens including a second place in three thirds climbed as high as six in the world finished the year six on the money list at the and then at uh at at the Ryder Cup, he makes a big splash. Ryder Cup rookie, obviously the famous with him with the flag around him. He goes out first in Sunday singles and absolutely dusts Sergio Garcia. Just the the American nemesis. Uh, he beats him, I think, five and four in that Did, in that match. What walks? By the way, that's that match is on YouTube. If you want to ever want to watch something late at night and you're missing out on something, as football kind of wraps up, it's a great watch. I watched it this summer. But I don't know if you guys remember this. AK didn't realize the match was over and was walking to the next screen. And they had to they had to like wave him back over. Jose Maria and Sergio are actually laughing as he was literally like pounding pavement to go after he made, I think he made about a 10-footer to win the match and had no idea that he'd won the match. But I was diving a little into this, Andy, about uh, that moment, that Ryder Cup. And there was some great zinger stuff on AK. He said he was our team leader, chip on the shoulder guy. You know, a lot of that stuff he talked about. But he said he kept saying, I want to play Sergio. I want to play Sergio, Zing. Let me play Sergio. I'm going to whoop his ass for you today, Captain, is what he said on the first tee. And Zinger said after the match ended, the first thing he said to him on the green, after they all shook hands, he said, I told you I was going to whoop his ass. Like, he wanted the best young European player, and he absolutely waxed the floor with them. So, you know, you talk about moments in his career. Outside of the Masters, I'm sure we'll get to – 08 was the moment. Like that was when yeah. Anthony Kim really arrived. Huge, huge moment. This is the pinnacle really of his career is 2008. Um, I'm just going to run through the rest of this here. Um, so 2009, the big well, highlight. Hold, hold, Andy, hold on one yeah. second. Joseph, Joseph, do you have 08 stats for him? Just like how good he was statistically or anything like that? Well, so I'll get to a little bit of that, I guess, when, when we talk about profiling with a current player. But the only other notes I had on 2008 that I thought were interesting, yeah, some of the power courses, Quail Hollow, Congressional, gets his wins. He also finished runner-up at Harbortown. And like that's right, not a course that you traditionally think of as being a bomber's course. It's not, right? It's more of a positional course, good short game. So interesting to see him do well there. And then I just thought the Tour Championship leaderboard was pretty funny at Eastlake in 2008. You had... Uh, Camila, uh, Camila Viegas beat Sergio in a playoff. Phil and Anthony Kim were tied for third. And then fourth place or fifth place was four shots behind them. So just like not, not Anthony Kim's year was really impressive and he didn't just show it in his two wins. I mean, it was a solid year throughout. Wait, wait, did he start at six under or was I believe it was a real tournament back then where everyone started at the same score. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to ask. I wanted, that leaderboard was actually that great leaderboard. It's not just, you know, wasn't just doctored to get that right now. Okay. And- to answer your question, he was, he, uh, Anthony Kim strokes gained like the raw unadjusted for strength of field, but he was gaining 1.55 strokes per round in 2008 he was third on tour so uh elite that's uh yeah it's something uh, i 2008 that's the year to hold on to right uh so 2009 early 2009 
makes 11 birdies in the second round of the Masters. Shoots 65. This could be, you know, this could be like uh, to Joseph's point, and maybe some of these birdies were because he was firing at every flag. He made 11, but he probably made a lot of bogeys. He shot 65. You know? I think he made two bogeys in a double, by the way, is yeah. what he did that day. I got a lot of stuff on this round. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Yes. So guys, he finishes you... third in that Masters. He beats Nick Price's 10 birdie record at Augusta National. So real quick, um, who do you th- do you guys remember who he played with in that round? Second I round don't. and he made 11 birdies. Sorry. One Great. He finished he finished third in the 2010 Masters. Correct. Correct. Oh, nine. He finished no. 20th. Yeah. When he when he made the 11 birdies, he shot 75, I think, in the opening round. You know, he didn't play great then. Makes the 11 birdies playing alongside. This is great for your little golf Jeopardy class. Rio Ishikawa oh. and a very young Rory McIlroy. Wow. Rory up close. Got to see the 11 birdies. There's a great story. I believe it was a, a DeShare article about um, him talking to Smiley about this at one point. And he said, I got to see it up close. It was crazy. Uh, did not birdie two. So doesn't birdie the second hole, the par five. And maybe the most impressive part about this, the second round scoring average that day at the Masters, 74-8-4, the highest it'd be all week. 17 players in the field of 96 broke par. Three of those rounds were under 70, and he shoots he shoots 65 with 11 birdies. Uh, he birdied 1, 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, 12, 13, 14, 15, and made a 12-footer on 18 to break Nick Price's record. Crazy, crazy stuff. It's actually like one of the great rounds that could also be considered a psycho scorecard just with the double and the two bogeys in there. Just unbelievable unbelievable to make 11 birdies like i wonder how many birdies i should i wish i would have done this he made and route to a t20 tournament <laughs> like but that, that's what i'm saying like that's what all of his scorecards look like the tour championship in 2008 he has a 64 and a 72 in that tournament like that's what a lot of his results look like it's on brand so that year also he goes three and one at the president's cup the famous, the famous uh, match, probably, I think that probably the, the most enduring AK uh, memory for me is, is this run in with Robert Allenby, none other than Robert Allenby, everybody's favorite Australian golf legend. Um, <laughs> stayed out till four, beat him when he beat him. Allegedly, five and three. allegedly stayed out till four and was deemed to be by Allenby sideways. And I think he came out and he said he shot. Did he say he shot sixty six and smoked me five and three or something? I mean, it was some crazy round of golf that he put together. Yeah, he just just laid laid the wood on him. Just just smoked Allenby. Um, and then, like, to make the best part of this whole story is that they then met again in the World Match Play like a month later, and he beat Allenby. He drubbed him again. He just smoked him again in the World Match Play. And like Allenby at this time is like a top 10 player. Like this is everybody thinks about like Allenby when he's getting kicked out of, uh, you know, quad city casinos and the, obviously the, uh, the incident at the Sony, the, the alleged kidnapping, but that might've been just Allenby sideways at 4am. <laughs> everybody thinks about that stage of Allenby was like a certified, like top, top tier ball striker for a number of years like you can look go look at like ball striking stats from the mid 2000s and it is just like robert allenby robert allenby robert allenby robert allenby every year um so 
impressive wins, especially, you know, given the circumstances. Uh, so final tour win comes 2010 at the Houston Open. This is right before the Masters that he finished at, uh, finished third in. So he wins the Houston Open. He becomes the uh, fifth player in 30 years to have won three times on the PGA Tour before the age of 25. The others being Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Sergio Garcia, and Adam Scott. Bonafide Hall of Fame list. Uh, and Andy, the... That that was around the time. Now you you know you mentioned there's like a refocus for him when he turned pro and went a little wild. There was also a refocus going into 2010. He apparently went to Vegas with his caddy and his coach and some buddies, and they had this whole recommitment to golf and to practicing and to getting into better shape. And in the Shipnuck article, he said AK wanted to buy. I think it was like a Ferrari and a and a Porsche, but he said he couldn't do it because he had to be able to sit sit four people in the car. So they could all go do stuff together, like refocusing on golf. So he said he had to get a car that had four seats in it. But 2010, going into that season, was when AK kind of said, "Enough is enough. Let's let's find a little bit more. You know, let's let's focus a little bit more on what I'm trying to do. You know, for a career." And you saw it a lot, especially in his early early season play there. Um, yeah. So he finishes third, then two, and then also, um. You know, you know who was in the final group of the 2010 Quail Hollow? Who was it? Rory and uh, AK. Final group. Yeah, it was first tour one for Rory. It's when he shot 61 or whatever. It might not have been final group, but final round they were paired together. Okay, yeah, Anthony can finish what tied for seventh in that event. So, yeah, probably just final round. And and by the way, just just one note on 2010 uh, Masters. I know you mentioned him finished third. Shot 65 final round there. Uh, went on a run on the back where he birdied 13, birdied 14, eagled 15, birdied oh. 16, and had a real chance there, by the way, at that point. I think at the time when he made that eagle, he was a shot off the lead. So there was real buzz. If you go back and watch that final round, there was real buzz around you know the, the second nine there at the Masters that AK might actually get this thing done. So uh, after that, effectively, that's when the injury started to hit. That's when the thumb injury, and it was really from there, like kind of a, a downward uh, kind of uh, spiral at that point. And really, we didn't see it wasn't really a downward spiral. It just was kind of over. I think there's a it coincides with a pretty big drop in his driving distance, which you can imagine. And um, I don't know exactly when the driver yips really start, but I feel like that's become another trademark of Anthony Kim's career is kind of getting the driver yips towards the end of his competitive career. Do you remember when that officially started? I mean, the, the driving numbers start to get bad about around mid 2010. Yeah. I mean, that was the thumb injury, right? Yep. He talked about how he couldn't practice. So 2012, uh, Shipnuck SI article, um, that may Kim vented his frustration to Doug Ferguson of the Associated Press. I hear it all the time across the locker room doors. I hear people, what's going on with him? I hear little comments. He doesn't care about golf. Everyone has a reason to explain my struggle. struggles. Well, no one knows the reason but me. I need to hit balls to practice, but I'm hurting myself by hitting more balls. So you know, you like can't practice, right? It's, it's hard to be a late of, player. I mean, I know it's way lesser. I know it's a way lesser version of, of the guy I'm going to compare him to. But God, there's a lot of comps to Tiger with this guy. I mean battling off the course stuff yet still able to focus on the golf course and play elite level golf hit it a lot longer than a lot of people could lean on the driver and then 
you know, battle the injuries where he couldn't practice the amount he wanted to practice to continue to, to improve, get better and find a way to, to be competitive. And, you know, Andy, I know we mentioned Rory a couple of times, but it was literally as AK was kind of peaking and then starting to fall off was the moment that Rory was becoming Rory McIlroy. And it was almost like he just missed that youthfulness of Sergio because he was five years younger than Sergio. You know, so he was playing Sergio as the young European, yet he just missed out on the true young European who was Rory at the time. So it was almost like he was just in this kind of very, very small bubble between that Tiger, Phil, VJ, Sergio burst onto the scene, and then that new crop of guys like Jordan. I mean, I think he got his... PJ tour card out of Q school with Jason day. I think Jason day got his card the same year or just missed out the same year that AK got through Q school. So that gives you a good idea of the age of the players he was battling with. Yeah, it's, I mean, he was the precursor really to Rory and Ricky. He was like, I think we, we talk about youth on tour and it was him, Jason day, Rory and Ricky were that new crop and he was right at the forefront. He was the, the that young talent, that young Tiger Woods inspired talent really is Anthony Kim is right at the front line of it. And that's probably like what should be his enduring legacy is like he was the first of that youth wave. Right. It's like the um, it's like the high school kids in the NBA draft a little bit. Right. Yeah, there's that one generation of those guys that we're all going to remember and think about the Garnets, the Kobe's. This guy can't play. What is Kobe doing coming out of the draft early? And obviously, he kind of battled himself and it worked out. And I feel like for AK, to your point in that story about wanting to spend one year at Oklahoma and his mom wanting him to stay a little bit longer, I mean, this was a guy that kind of saw the future ahead of, of everybody else and he knew how talented he was. And it just feels like, Joseph, as you're diving into the numbers, and they're so small, right? You don't have a lot to go on, and they're not nearly as in-depth as 2024 data. But looking at who AK was on the golf course, I pulled up his stuff this morning. I mean, this dude's like top five, not just top 10. He's like top five in these important categories in his prime, you know, kind of across the board. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, well, I don't know, Andy, if you have much more that you want to wrap up. I just have career, a little bit about like um, the the space from from 2012 till now. Yep. which is like injuries. It's just been mystery, right? Injuries. Um, and then obviously the insurance policy. So like the main reason that is believed they never made a return was he took out an insurance policy against injury um, where he was paying pretty significant amount to for this premium. Uh, it's rumored to be upwards of 10. I think like people are saying 10 now, but it, it was believed to be more, more like 20. I think from what I read, like in the moment, I don't know what it ends up being, where then he started to receive monthly payments from this insurance policy. And if he returned to professional golf, then the insurance policy is void. He has to pay back the, the amount. So that's been one thing that's kept him out of this and what is attractive with Liv. But like, let's go. So 2012 Shipnuck article. How's Kim spending the uh, his time these days? Lots of sports center, says his friend. Lots of golf channel. Kim's relentless, uh, relentlessness is palpable. He still has a passion, says the friend. He always t is talking about golf. He wants to be out there. He misses it. In fact, on Thursday through Sunday, Kim is usually in front of a TV monitoring tour telecasts. It's kind of sad to see, says the friend. Sometimes I want to grab him, shake him, and yell, what the hell are you doing? You're Anthony Kim. Get off the damn couch and get out there and find your game. That's an interesting quote with the find your game. Right? Because then in 2015, there's a Doug Ferguson uh, article um, 
AP and I think the 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 Palm Desert uh uh report golf reporter helped with this a little bit too. Uh, Anthony Kim got interviewed. I didn't actually. I had never. I didn't have a recollection of this article. I don't either. Okay, so he said, "I'm going to step away from the game for a little while and get my body pieced together. Instead of going from an Achilles injury to try uh, and to try to go 180 miles per hour and not fixing the problem, I've got so much ground to make up from injuries: rotator cuff, labrum, spinal fusion. I did not know this. Wow, hand injury." I've had six or seven inj- uh, surgeries the last three and a half years. I had no recollection of this article or the spinal fusion. Like that's, I mean, that's obviously like we know everybody knows spinal fusion because of of Tiger. But like, if he had a spinal fusion, I mean that that's a whole new thing to discuss with like the prospects of him coming back, right? He said he's getting monthly payments from insurance policy he took out five years ago in case he was injured, but he denied speculation that the policy was a factor uh, that it was keeping him from returning to the PGA Tour. I paid well into the mid-six figures for this policy, he said. They wouldn't have paid me every month had uh, I not been to the doctor, showing them all my x-rays, doing all the treatment, the acupuncture, twice a day for physical therapy. He also explained his abrupt departure from Quail Hollow after shooting 74 back in 2012. Kim said he ignored his summons for drug testing when he walked to the parking lot, though he eventually was tested. So he got a bad rap because people said he was trying to duck out from a drug test. I was mad about how I played. I injured myself again. I ended up coming back and taking the test, he said. I've never tested positive for anything since I've been on the PGA Tour whenever the drug testing started. Never. And they tested me more than anyone. These these rumors tainted my reputation, and I did I didn't have a great one to begin with. Kim had no idea he would be gone this long. He played golf with Phil Mickelson at Madison Club in the California desert. He rented a house in, in San Diego to prepare for the 2013 season. He said he was up at 5 a.m. every day to train when his Achilles Achilles tendon popped. Once he recovered from the leg, he had a herniated disc, and the injuries piled up. Golf moved on without him. He has a major medical exemption he can use if he ever returns. Uh, Kim would have to earn six hundred thirteen thousand uh, in sixteen events to keep his card. And then last thing, Chris Goderup was on the subpar pod. You know who is actually like best friends with AK, his closest friend, Casey Wittenberg, right? Uh, well, that and Colt Nost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Colt was close with him. Yep. So he's the host of the Subbar Pod. Um, apparently, like he kind of like ghosted Colt. I saw that in the Shipnuck article where he was, uh, you know, Colt was like, "I haven't really talked to him he, since he left. He's, I, I haven't seen him." And they were apparently like the best friends. So it'd be interesting to hear Colt talk about that uh, if uh, if they ever if they kick to it on like the broadcast or something, um, or on the Subbar Pod, which got Chris got got her up, Oklahoma legend, uh, who's a rookie on the PGA Tour. The one thing Goderup did reveal is that according to his coach, AK, now 37, still has some serious game. He said, even to this day, when Kim comes up and hits balls, it's almost sad because he still has he's still so good and no one is able to see it. But he said Kim was also a freak of nature. He was so good. So it's interesting. Maybe he's been in Norman hitting balls like and I bet they have like you know, like those college programs have these test tests. Like they sure. know, they measure against all this stuff. I'd be curious if if uh, Hibble, the coach of Texas, has like some fairly 
uh, recent AK numbers, like how how he compares to some of his players, some tour players. So that's I, it. Yeah, I, I'd heard. Uh, so one of the one of my stories that I'd heard, you know, I I grew up in East Texas, still have some buddies that live in the Dallas area, and one of my my favorite AK rumored stories. Obviously, this is coming from friends that know people, but I think it was about five or six years ago. And as the story goes, AK was at a bar with some buddies. And a little bit like um, in the scene in Notting Hill, you know, when he's out to dinner with Julie Roberts and the table next to it's talking about the Julie Roberts character and she goes over. Apparently there were some guys sitting near AK talking about Anthony Kim, the legend that is Anthony Kim. And much like in the Notting Hill movie, they started to talk about all the reasons he didn't play golf. And I guess it started to piss AK off. And he'd spent, apparently spent the next month, like eight, nine hours a day on the golf course practicing. And he was going to come back and make a return. And his friends basically said, you're going to have to make, you know, $30 million on the tour to make up for what you've taken from this insurance policy. His friends being kind of the, the, the sounding board, if you will, to make sure he didn't take a return and have to give the tour 30 mil and have to make it all up. But, you know, I mean, I think. That's the thing. Oh. The, the policy was tax free. So when right? you, yeah, so, so you when go. you do the math of agents, coaches, travel, all of that, like people are like, oh, it's 10 million, 10 million or 20 million, 20, 20 million. It's actually what he would have to earn on the PGA tour. Substantially, we're almost probably double the, what he, what he got out of the, out of the policy. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I said this, I did, I did the, the Nolan up rap show on Saturday night with KVV and Porter. And I mentioned this on there, we were talking about AK, but you know, listen, and, and Joel Beal wrote this for digest. And I agreed with a lot of what he wrote. I mean, we live in this Anthony Kim, 2007 2008 world right and it's 2024 and i said this on the no laying up pod joseph because i think it's important to look back at how far you know back we go with 08 the Ryder cup team the moment of anthony kim's career the one we all remember the team he was on was phil stewart sink kenny perry jim furick justin leonard ben curtis boo weekly stricker mahan jb holmes and chad campbell i mean that is uh, that is a tour of the past, right? That is not what modern professional golf looks like. And the players he was going up against, really outside of Sergio, I mean, Podrick and Westwood and Stinson and Carlson, Jimenez. Well, that's, the, that's the magic sticks. It, literally, it's like he's playing <laughs> the magic sticks. A, a, a rationer of, uh, of Ian a... Poulter, Paul Casey on that team. Like, this was the, I mean, this was what 08 golf looked like, right? And we're talking about 2024 and the top 10 in the world being really young. And I've seen a lot of the stuff float around of like comparable age players. I think there were three players in that same age group that won last season on the PGA tour, like 38 is old. And I hope Justin, it's great. Justin Rose. Yeah. It was like, Rose that's... and Brian Harmon is around that age. And that was kind of it. Like this isn't what golf was in 08 in a lot of ways. And the main point of this is people that are dominant in professional golf right now are between the ages of 22 and 26. And Anthony Kim is not 26 anymore. I mean, he's. He, I think they, it's those impo- kids important. Born, right? Important. To, there's one outlier, and that's Rory McIlroy, who continues to remain the just a monster off the tee. And I think that's, you know, that's the big question about AK. It's like, if he's still, if he's, if he has gained no yardage or lost yardage, this is this. We shouldn't even be talking about this, yeah. right? I would push that prime back a little bit, Shane. I think like. 22 to 26 feels a little young to me, but I agree with the the broader point that not only is he older, 
but I think he has now lived through an era that's completely changed. And the last five or six years, the speed increases, what's coming on in 2024, we're already seeing it with some of these young golfers coming out. It, expecting Anthony Kim to be strong off the tee, I think, is uh, a bit far-fetched. So I would never want to say never, but I'm not as optimistic about his return. Uh, can I give you the the comp that I came up with for who his his player might be? Which player he might most closely resemble? Is this is this a modern player? This is like a current player in professional golf. Current player in professional golf. I was thinking a lot about this. It's really hard because of how short his career is. But I think a golfer that I've actually gotten comfortable. I think this is the correct comparison. The hyped prospect. Success right away, and then a bunch of success once he gets his feet wet. His career didn't turn out as prolific as the golfer I'm going to compare him to, but I actually think Anthony Kim and Justin Thomas have quite a bit in common. And where I was going with that, Anthony Kim makes his debut in 2006, but his first full season is 2007. Like that's really when his professional career starts. He gets to world number six within a year and a half. So, um, like, October of 2008, a year and a half into his career. He's world number six. Justin Thomas plays his first full season on the PJ Tour in 2015. Gets to world number eight in two years. So January of 2017, kind of similar start to their careers. In their first 10 majors, Anthony Kim makes nine cuts, two top tens, and his 10th major championship is a solo third at the Masters. And Justin Thomas's first 10 majors, he makes eight cuts. Two top tens, and his 10th start is a win at Quail Hollow, where Anthony Kim won his first tournament. I think the power off of the tee, the ball striking, the success in the team events, the, and like the, the aggression. To go, sorry? The aggression, like the aggressiveness the aggression, of, their ga- of their game. The ability to shoot 59 like Justin Thomas has, Anthony Kim rattling off 11 birdies. I think there's quite a bit of similarity in their games. Obviously, Justin Thomas has gone on to have a monster career compared to what Anthony Kim has accomplished. So I I don't think it's a perfect comparison and how things panned out, but I kind of think from a stylistic perspective and what some of their stats look like, I kind of like that comparison. So I was curious what Andy and Shane, what you guys think about that one. Both left, left school early. Yeah. Young start. Yeah. I like that. I think that's actually like a very, like when you think about like what draws people to Justin Thomas fandom, it is the, the wide array of shot making right the there's a there's an electricity to the way he plays golf you know it it feels like too i mean you could even dive deeper joseph past just what they look like on the golf course i would even go into personality you know i mean i feel like ak i mean going back to shack versus which i know is a silly show on tv but ak's the guy that shack picks to be his teammate justin thomas is one of those guys that seems to translate well with other athletes, right? Other athletes like his style, like his confidence, his bravado, those types of things seem to work well outside of just the golf room. And it feels like AK had a lot of similarities in that world, right? The way he carried himself, the you know, the way he pulled off golf shots, no matter the moment. You hear other athletes talk about Anthony Kim in his prime, and it's glowing responses, right? I mean, other golfers talk about Anthony Kim, and they gush about him. You hear you know, some of the older players. I mean, I remember Phil Mickelson talking about JT, you know, in that 2017, 2018, 2019 run and how how impressed he was with JT at such a young age. So it almost feels like just even outside of their games and coming out of college into pro golf, it feels like just as personality people, they had a little more than just your everyday good player on the PGA Tour. I agree. And the 
I, I even think with some of the driver yips, like we've seen Justin yep. Thomas get a little bit stray with the driver. Like just looking at their stats high level, they do kind of line up. I mean, when Anthony Kim came on to professional golf scene, he was between 10th and 16th in his first three years on tour and driving distance was pretty consistently around 300 yards. Justin Thomas first full year was 15th and kind of hovered between 15th and 8th to 12th over the first couple of years of his career. I, I, I think the profile tracks pretty well. Also chokes up on his golf club like AK does. So True. there you go. There you go. Maybe, maybe, maybe JT was, uh, you know, he always talks about Tiger, but J, uh, AK was actually JT's inspiration, right? The true school of hard knocks was just the AK school of hard knocks for JT. It would match up, match up age wise, right? True. Um, so what do you guys think about his comeback? What are realistic expectations? I mean, that's the hard part is I just feel like it's so unknown. You know, guys take two years off and three years off, and you can at least have an idea of who they're going to be on the golf course. But 12 years, it's a gen- it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime for pro athletes. Is this? Here's my question to you guys in this same vein. Is there even a comp to this? Is there a comp to somebody who's taken more than a decade away from pro sport and coming back and attempting to be good at it again? I think there's been times they've taken a year or two off, but – not 12 years. I can't think of a single athlete the, that would the fall only thing this. I Maybe can think about, didn't, there might be a box. Didn't Lorena Ochoa come back for like a tournament? I think so. I mean, I think she played in, in her event, right, on the LPGA Tour. Yeah, like after like 10 years, 10 years away or something. Like that's the only only thing that jumps to mind. Like obviously the Tiger stuff is, is somewhat um, instructive, but you're talking about the greatest player ever. And like one to two year absences, not 12 years, 12 years. If he had like some bad accident when he was 16 and he was coming back at age 26, I'd be much more optimistic about what this could look like. But he he's 38 years old and the game is way, way different now than what it used to be. Like, I think if he got to if he played a full schedule and got to like 35th in the world, it'd be an unbelievable accomplishment. And that feels really far-fetched to me. Seems so tough to do. I will say this. I mean, if you're thinking about this completely unique situation, right? An athlete, you know, stepping away from the game at a young age and trying to come back when he's nearing the age of 40, there's nothing better for somebody than what Liv offers right now. You know, you think about the Nothing. fields are smaller. You've got probably guaranteed 25 money. guys. That, guaranteed money. You probably feel comfortable that you can beat 20 guys a week, even if you aren't that good anymore. You might be able to beat 20 players. And then if you're, you are you get on John Rahm's team, let's just throw that out there. Let's say he's on Rahm's team in a couple of months, and your team wins a couple times throughout the season. Financially, it all makes sense. To me, Anthony Kim has always looked like a guy – that lived on confidence, and then the moment the injury started to pile up, he was super scared of what coming back might look like. And we've all been there. We've all taken time away from the gym or running or playing competitive golf or whatever, or dating or whatever the case may be as a human. And all of a sudden, you want to get back in the pool and you go, I hope I can still do this again. It's scary to jump into that world. But, you know, you read the Shipnuck article, Andy, and I mean, he, he hints at that, right? He hints at the fact that there was an there was ego to be smashed. If you're Anthony Kim, if you come back and you suck and you hit a 270 and you can't compete anymore, then all that's made up about who you were as a pro and the legacy and the hour we've talked about it on this podcast and beyond 
goes away because the end of your chapter, the end of the book is, and he came back to pro golf and he sucked, right? So he's got to at least accept the fact that that could be a, that could be a thing here. I think like the popular, or the unpopular right answer of all this is Anthony Kim probably shouldn't come back because it's yep. more romantic if he just stays away and we'll always be able to hold on to that like burst of stardom um, at a time when Tiger was injured, you know, like Tiger, this was like kind of like he came on right when Tiger started to have the injury off the course issues. Right. And he became this ray of hope and bridged us to Rory McIlroy. Right. Um, and I think like when you think about it, it's that's the the thing that probably makes the most sense is him to stay away, stay this folk hero that like left golf too early. And, you know, but if he does come back, I think lives the only the only option for him from the insurance money. Um, you know, that I saw Terrell Hatton just today got what sixty seven million dollars um to go there or something about that. If I apologize, it might be sixty three million American dollars to go to live. Um, you know, they could cut him a check for thirty million dollars and you know, and and he could play. And you think about like like you said, like those fields are are gettable, right? Like I would have a hard time believing uh Anthony Kim would be able to go out and consistently make cuts on on the PGA tour. I think he could be not the worst player on on Live. He could be one of you know not he could be above the bottom five on Live when you start to look through the players. I mean, you got Westy's getting into his into into his 50s like he is into his 50s you've got a lot of young guys that are going to be a little volatile they're learning how to be professional golfers you've got you know you just have graham mcdowell right like i think he can play with graham mcdowell at this point in his career right maybe i don't know we haven't seen much of them but you start to look through the the roster of live players like the bottom half of live the top half of live now is really good quite good but the bottom half of live is not is still pretty weak. So it's like, you know, could he go in there and have a finish 20th and make a lot of money? Yeah. And we're going to see it. Like, I think like the thing is not, not about going out and shooting low rounds. I still think he could go out and shoot low rounds. If, if he's a shell of what he used to be, it's the, it's just stringing together. If it's live three, three good rounds. Right. To both of your points, I, I think the no cut thing, is a very attractive piece of returning to live versus returning to the PGA tour, knowing you're going to get three competitive rounds psychologically versus getting cut. I think if you're trying to rehab, it's a little easier to go back when you know, you're going to get three rounds and then, you know, you can take some positive momentum from shooting a good third round score that moves you up six spots. Like it's just a little bit easier to rehab under those conditions. I would say that, in terms of the best possible marriage for both Liv and Anthony Kim, it's probably Liv and Anthony Kim. You know, you think about what Liv needs. Liv needs something to make us want to watch, right? Because they've yet to get a golfer, even with Rom going there, they've yet to get a golfer, I think, that's making the everyday golf fan want to find it on TV and turn it on, no matter what time zone it's in. I've got to watch this. Anthony Kim's playing golf and they're playing in Singapore or Australia or Paris or wherever the case may be. I'm going to wake up and watch that first round. I'm going to watch that first tournament. Andy, I think you said on the shotgun start, you're thinking four to five events. 
you know, they will benefit on the back end of. But if you're thinking about Anthony Kim here, Joseph's point on the cut is true. But also, if he plays terrible, then aren't we just going to forget that he's doing it? Like, yeah. He'll just be another person that's playing on live that finishes 40th. I mean, I don't, I don't remember. I couldn't name the bottom 15 guys of live right now. There's no chance C1 I'd be able Kim. to name it. Well, that's the bottom guy. <laughs> remember, remember when uh, Kobe did the farewell tour and this is like, I'm not comparing him to Kobe, but like Kobe's out there and it was like big for like certain stops at certain cities. But like for the most part, it's just Kobe playing hero ball every single night. Every it night. got really, really old, really fast. Right. Like until the there last was like, game. Yes. Yeah. So like with Anthony Kim, like there there will be this like this interest right off the bat. But if he's not competitive, it, it just is going to be, oh, he's playing the the spectacle. And this is where if he just never plays again, he will be held in this high regard. Right. We talked about the end of Shaq's career. This is the perfect example. Like you get these years, the Boston Celtics, the the Phoenix Suns, you know, like these obscure places they played for, and and it just wasn't Shaq, right? Can I take the other side of that though, really quickly, Andy? Yeah. Isn't what we love about sports though, somebody wanting to defy the odds, not to be overly romantic about it, but and saying, you know what, I do want to come back. And Shane's story about him hearing from another dinner table that people are doubting him coming back. I think that's also kind of what Liv needs is a player that's in it for competitive reasons, not taking a payout, like who's in it to show what they still have. And we've seen Camilla Viegas, somebody who's older than uh, Anthony Kim, like win recently. It's not out of the realm of possibilities. And I think that little glimmer of hope is what makes sports entertaining. So even if I'm pessimistic about what it looks like, I'm absolutely here for the show. Joseph, I would say this. I think it's the first golfer to go to live that's going to be hungry. I think that's the big part of the Anthony Kim story is every single person that's gone to live's belly is full, right? They got a big amount of money paid off the top. They're going to this tour either because they're past their prime or they wanted a check and they wanted to maybe play less golf or whatever, you know, we've heard over the last two years from all these golfers. This, there's an argument to be, to be made that this is the first person that would be going to live that would be hungry for results. And that that's, could, that that's could Kieran and That's Kieran and Vincent slander, and I won't stand for it. <laughs> I think you made that name up. I think you made that name up. He won the Q school. I'm just kidding. Don't you dare talk about Eugenio Chichara like that. <laughs> I just like like it, you know, it would be so fun if he was competitive in golf, but this is as big a win as Liv's going to ever have. And I said this a couple of days ago. I can't believe this didn't happen off the top. I can't believe Liv didn't offer him an insane amount of money off the top to go right when they started, because again, that would have made people watch and that would have made people care. And as I think about Liv and whatever its next iteration is going to be, why aren't they trying to get more of this? And when I say this, I mean not just pro golfers. Like, why not go get John Smoltz and pay him $2 million a year to play live golf? And just so people can say, here's Smoltz. Let's see how he compares against actual pro golfers. Like, it's, I'll I disagree. mean, it might, be a circ- it might be a circus act, but at least it's something, to, it's something different. Well, I'll disagree that I think what earnestly Anthony Kim could represent is watching a live tournament and saying, hey, does this golfer have what it takes to win, to be competitive in a major again? I don't feel that way about somebody like Brooks Kepka, who's been pretty clear that those are regular season events to him, whether it was PJ Tour or Liv. 
not necessarily an indication of how he's going to do in a major versus watching Anthony Kim would feel like you're watching it for competitive reasons. And I think that's what Liv needs. So John Smoltz, I wouldn't have that same. I, I know John Smoltz can't play in a major championship, but right. if Anthony Kim goes out and puts up some really strong results on Liv, four or five of them in a row, your brain would start to go there. And I think that's what Liv needs. Yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, it's fascinating. I think we all agree that Liv's the only place for him right now. Andy, Andy, did you ever see AK in person? Did you ever see him play in person, go to a tournament he was in? I don't think I did. I did not. I was did trying to the think. Bridgestone. I, Summit Firestone. I was, try, I was trying to think today. It, that, was it, that, was at that, that was the end of my uh, my collegiate life. I would say okay. that that was like the moment in time. Anthony Kim's moment in time, early 20s, was when I was most disconnected with the sport i i would watch you know on on the weekends but i was you know i was early 20s right feel feel like i might have seen him in arizona at one point i do remember that i went to the tucson open when i was in college with my daily wildcat credential to watch ty Tryon when he was having his year on tour and followed him for 18 holes uh and that was when he was the Massimo target guy. And um, that was one of those, you know, there was only like 15 people out there watching him, but I was so fired up to see how he'd do. But I can't distinctly remember a moment when I saw AK up close. Maybe I'd seen him in Phoenix one time or twice. I, I do feel like, um, you know, what what you said about the way players, big big time players talked about AK is so drastically different than other like flash. And, like you, you can't find Ty Tryon quotes like that. You can't find Rio Ishikawa quotes like that, right? Like they are they are few and far between um when you get somebody like Phil talking like that about somebody. All right, we're going to we're going to start a new little segment for this Tuesday or Monday whenever you listen to this show that we're doing this year. We're going to have a a closing segment here where we each come up with a recommendation. So, uh Shane, you got a recommendation? I do. I do. Um, this is not sponsored. This is just something I think is excellent. Um, I, you guys know electrolyte water is like a big thing right now, and you pour the packets and stuff in your water. You know, that's mm-hmm. big. Um, yep. The Element Mango Chili Salt one, I know it sounds weird, but James Nitty's got me on this last year during Corn Ferry. It's like the best tasting thing I've ever had in my life. And so, like, I'm drinking it right now, and you pour it in there, but... Listen, I know when you think about flavoring, you'd go a lot of different ways than mango chili for a flavor of your water, but it is bomb. So that's my recommendation. It's so a little spicy. That's Element, which is L-M-N-T, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. L-M-N-T. L-M-N-T. Aberdeen Scottish Open. Is that what Aberdeen... That's a good It's a good tip. I feel like I've been, you know, I've been running a lot lately, and I... I've been, I got like, I think I'm having some dehydration issues at, at the end, end of the day. Like gonna, I noticed I, my back starts to get sore. So I'm going to, I'm going to buy some of this. Well, listen, I'm buying a box right now and I'm going to mail it to you right now. So don't buy no. it yourself. Yes. I'm going to send you this box right you know, now. I don't need, I, to, I don't need you, you to buy it. For I'm, me. I don't, I know you don't need it to, you own a company, but I'm going to send this to you and you let me know if it's good or not. And if you hate it, just bring it to the masters or whenever I'm going to see you next and I'll take it off your hands. All right. All right. That sounds go. like a good deal. Do you guys you know go. your recommendations or no? Yeah, I got a recommendation. Joseph, you got I, yeah. one? Go ahead, Andy. All right. I got one. Um, my wife, she's been doing a bit of a dry January. She's been she got she got a little too deep in the holidays. She's been she's been pulling back. And I've had I've had a few of these 
and they are really good. If you're looking for something um, that are like a, you know, that are just like a non-alcoholic thing, she's been drinking these Kin Euphorics. Um, they are is delicious. Is it like wine? What is it yeah. like? Yeah. So it's like a non-alcoholic, like it's like a mocktail, right? Okay. Where it, it, it's got taste, but then it's got like a, adaptogens. It's like, it's not just like sugar, right? It's got good stuff in it. It's got like botanics, uh, nootropics in it, but they're really good. They're really tasty and they have some st- stuff like they, they've got some just, it's, it's good. It's good stuff. They make you like, I notice like my biggest problem when I try when I go dry is that like when I go grill, I just need a drink. Like I not, a, I don't need a, an alcoholic beverage. I need just something that's delicious to drink. Right. That's what I like the ritual of drinking something. So having like these in the fridge has been really great. You know, it's been I it's just a recommendation I got. Joseph, what do you got? Yeah, you guys went with products. I went a slightly different direction. Um, Low music rec. Early in 2023, I was super into this album and then kind of put it away for a while and back into it a little bit. Good vibes. The album is called Proof of Life by Joy Aladakun. Might not be a name that a lot of people know, but. I've seen her live and she's awesome. And it's just something that is a feel good. You can throw on in the car when you're feeling pessimistic about the state of professional golf. It'll cheer you up a little bit. So I love add it. Of life, add, joy a lot of add it. Adding it to the Apple music right now. And it's a deluxe album. So there you go. I love that. What was it music again? Group. I'm going to add it right now. What Proof is it? of life. It's called Proof, Proof of Life by Joy Alatacoon. I, right. I didn't know who she was until this album came out. It was recommended to me by multiple people, and I would pass that on. I can't even find. Oh, there it is. There it is. It looks hey, jo- happy. It does look happy. Joseph, you know what? I got I got a recommendation yesterday at the gym that blew my mind. Okay. So I, I was doing planks, and there was a lady right Plank next boy. to me. I was doing planks. She said, do you do? I got done, and she goes, do you use a timer when you do planks? And I said, yeah, I, I like do the timer, and then when it ends, obviously, I can stop. She said that if you do two-minute planks, We Will Rock You, the Queen song, is exactly two minutes and one second long. So she said, listen to that, gets you fired up, obviously puts you in a great place mentally, keeps you, you know, keeps the stamina up. You're really, really locked into the plank. And then when the song's over, that means your two minutes is up. So there you go. There's your plank wreck. Do you think there's an untapped market for creating songs that are exactly certain time intervals? I I used to make a CD back in the day, a beer pong CD. um, (laughs) Remember Girl Talk? Well, I did Power Hour CDs. I would make them where you'd condense the song to a minute. And you'd make a sixty, you know, a sixty-minute power hour CD. There you go. I remember making Joseph, those back. Joseph in the day. So has much no clue what making CDs was like. Do you know I what do. power hour? You guys is? are. I I know how to make a CD. This is ridiculous. This is slander. You've never burned a CD in your life. Yeah, You've never I burned have, an MP3 CD. No clue. I have burned a CD. Absolutely. At, off of Napster, off off of Kazaa, and just and just dialed it in. Yeah, it's off so of good. iTunes. What about what about right when you could like? I feel like it was like maybe like nineteen ninety nine or nineteen ninety eight is when you could start to like make your own CDs, your own mix CDs. Was like all the rage. Oh, so good. I used to I used to sell them. I mean, illegally, obviously, but I used to sell them at school for ten dollars, and I made a killing <laughs> off that stuff when I was in high school. I was like There's the only recommendation. Person- there you go. I was the only person in my hometown, I think, that had DSL off the top. You know, it was like could actually download 
download songs and it wouldn't take 25 minutes to download them, man, I would fire off CDs back in the day. So to all those artists I stole from Metallica and the likes, I apologize. I'm just as bad as, as Sean from Napster. We're setting an interesting precedent for what this segment represents. <laughs> Illegalities. Yeah. Well, all right. That's it. We'll end there with all of our illegal uh, ripoff uh, practices from our youth. Um, Shane, thanks for coming on. Talk about AK and uh, making CD mixes and, uh, and selling them, the business behind it. And uh, Joseph, thanks for coming on, talking to AK, and, uh, and we'll, we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks. Thanks.